0: Dr. Hunter has chosen John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26, as today's scripture text. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself, and his sons, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And now, here's Dr. Hunter with his sermon entitled, Worship the Verb. So
1: you can continue to seat people uh, we are uh, please turn to John chapter four. We are going to kind of flip flop worship today and so you, this is going to feel disjointed to you because you're not used to this order I'm going to preach first and then we're going to uh, do what I preached about and worship This is a message as you will see about five aspects of worship, and I want you to see that what we've been preaching about, about the five areas or arenas of life into which God deposits worship, are also replicated into the fabric of what, I'm sorry, into into which God deposits purpose, are also uh, mirrored in the structure of every worship service. Um, so that you can continue to get the idea that God has very intentionally put this world together and our worship must correspond to what He has put together. Now this is an odd scripture, uh, even though it mentions worship, it's an odd scripture to um, to preach from worship about. But I think what it does, and here's what I want it to do for you, I want this to take worship out of the realm of what is traditionally, seen as the center of worship so that you can get a broader perspective in all of life of what worship is. Now, read with me. John chapter 4, starting with the last sentence in verse 6. By the way, John Guest did a wonderful job with this passage last Sunday, and I'm going to add to what he said. It was about the sixth hour It says. Now, uh, of course, in the Jewish day, there there was the 12 hours from 6 to 6. The 6th hour would have been noontime, the hottest part of the day. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. This woman was obviously avoiding people. No one would come out to get water unless it was a weary traveler who happened by the well at that day. The ladies all got the water in the morning, and they got together and they talked. Uh, She was not a part of the acceptable group. She came there in order not to be confronted about her life situation. Let's uh, go ahead. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, let me tell you how... How mixed up this whole passage seems to be to get to worship. In the first place, it's not their traditional, you know, uh, everything is in order. Jesus is in a foreign land. He sends his disciples into a city where if you were a strict Jewish teacher, you wouldn't buy food from the Samaritans. This was a racial problem. And so therefore, even by sending his disciples in to have correspondence with the Samaritans, Jesus is exercising a great deal of tolerance and a great deal of love. Because a a Pharisee never would have done this. Secondly, a man is talking to a woman, stranger to stranger, you didn't do that. Thirdly, he was a Jew, she was a Samaritan, you didn't do that. So... Right now, this woman is thinking, Holy cow, what's going on here? Now, read ahead with me. It says, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? See she's not real fast on this stuff. Doesn't her her mind doesn't run to metaphor. She's she's still you know okay, where do you get this living water? Now she's thinking, here comes a battle. This is going to be a debate. This guy's going to pick on me. Because he's a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, and she starts to defend her heritage. Watch what she does. Which all of us do our heritage what we're you know, if somebody says Baptist or <coughs> Methodist or <coughs> you know, we start to listen, I'll tell you, look at what she does. She says, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and who drank from it himself, his sons and his cattle. See, she's she's putting that a little you want to tear into this? Let's go at it here. She's gonna argue with him because she has that right and she's okay. Jesus avoids the debate. He answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now she hadn't got it yet. But her response is so simple and childlike and wonderful. Even though she doesn't understand all there is to get, she wants it. Look at what she says. The woman said to her, Sir, give me the water. So I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. She doesn't, I mean, she just said, Whatever you got, give it to me. You you who have children know what a wonderful thing it is, their immediate response to what you have and wanting what you have and the simplicity of asking what you have. As a matter of fact, if you have small children, you will realize there was one time when you could eat something alone in peace. But... When you had children, you couldn't eat anything alone anymore because as soon as you stuck it up to your mouth, what do you got? Well, how, how, can I have some? I have kids coming up to me in the mall eating a hot dog. What do you got? Got a hot dog. What's it got? Got ketchup on it? Yeah, I got ketchup on it. Can I have a bite? Kids, see, it's wonderful. That's this a wonderful childlike you got You got water? Give it to me. Because I don't want to be thirsty and I don't want to come out here to draw every day. Not yet getting the point, but having the thirst. Knowing that she want, knowing there's something missing and wanting that thing that's missing, even though she doesn't fully understand what it is yet. It's a wonderful quality. Well, Jesus said, tell you what, I mean, it doesn't say that in here, I, it, but I, this is what he said. Said to her, uh, well, go call your husband and come here. She's nailed. This is the very thing she came out in the middle of the day to avoid. Being nailed as to her living situation. Go call your husband. Now she's got a choice. She can run and hide. Or she can confess. She's living in sin. She knows it. Now there's a while where sin hides. In John 3 it says, sin loves the darkness rather than the light. And there's a while where sin hides. But you know what? When sin hides long enough, it hurts bad enough. And it gets lonely enough that it is a relief to be discovered. It is a relief to be confronted. and That's exactly where it is with this woman. She doesn't try and run. She doesn't try and cover up. She doesn't try and go back and say, well, just came out to get some water. I'll see ya." She confesses. She says, I I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. She said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know, you're telling me this stuff. There, there's something else in this conversation that isn't in the words. It's between the lines. He, he is so sure of her situation. I perceive you're a prophet. Now look immediately to where her mind goes. John Guest saw this as a religious conversation. I see it as a, a, a sense of a need for worship. You're right. I've been discovered. I've got to get back to God. So she starts up this conversation about worship. She could have talked about laws. She could have talked about, well, this is why I'm doing that. She, got, she started the conversation about worship. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, that sounds like a terrible slam. It's not. The Samaritan believed in just the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. The Jews accepted the whole canon. So they had a larger picture of God. They had the picture of the major prophets and minor prophets and the, and the poets and the wisdom literature. Uh, they had the whole picture of Scripture. And so therefore, he was simply saying, we've got a fuller picture of God than you do. Listen, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I'm sorry. I skipped a verse. And an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshippers. I want you to see who is doing the seeking here. The Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, the woman gets her hopes all up for, for someday I'll be able... To, to, to have a relationship with this God. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to, him, to her, I who speak to you am He. Let me give you the five areas of worship that are so important that we include every Sunday. But they are not limited to a place neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, says Jesus. He disassociates worship with being confined to a particular place. And that's what I want to do in your mind this morning. I want to disassociate worship from being confined to a particular place. I want to separate it from being a noun that happens somewhere, person, place, or thing, you know. I want to separate it from that concept into a verb that is in the present tense that happens in your life often wherever you are when any one of these five areas comes up in your life so that you are able to worship every day and see it as worship and know it as worship. First area, let's talk about limitations. Let's talk about uh, a woman who realized that she was caught in her limitations. First of all, she was out there because of her limitations. She knew she couldn't be seen with certain companies. She was an outcast as far as society went. So every day she lived in her loneliness. Every day she she lived with her rejection. Every day. She had been rejected by five men or left lonely by five men. She now settled for a relationship just for someone to be in her life. And that cost her all respectability. And so she came out in her limitation. And when Jesus called her limitation, she was almost relieved. When we come short, when we say, God, I am doing this and I know I ought not to. Or when we say, God, I want to do this and I know I can't. We live with our limitations. When we face the everyday frustration of life, we're talking limitation. And that's why every worship should be a place, a time for confession. To say, I know I'm not enough. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what you want me to be. Help me to be what you want me to be. Or for a friend, I know they're having trouble. They're so frustrated. They're so lonely. Let me intercede for them. It's a great relief to worship God out of our limitation it is the cause of the worship of God when Jesus nailed her as to her limitation and she had to face her limitation the first thing she thought about was worship I gotta get back I gotta get back those of you who confront people on their sin they have one or two reactions either you're crazy I'm mad at you or you're right I gotta get back you're here today because you faced your limitations because life isn't everything it could be and you said i need god or at least i'm looking for god you're here because of your limitations it's a blessed thing to be miserable because of your limitations it's a great gift when there was there was a there was an old preacher who was talking about the weight of sin one time how miserable sin is and how much it weighed on a person who knew god And there was a smart aleck kid in the the congregation and he came up afterwards and he said, I don't feel anything. He said, Preacher, how much does sin weigh? Does it weigh 5 pounds? Does it weigh 10 pounds? Does it weigh 50 pounds? How much does it weigh? The preacher looked at him said, Son, this was back before preachers were politically correct, said, Son, if I laid 200 pounds on a dead body, how much weight would that dead body feel? He said, nothing. He said, that's why you can't feel anything. You're dead in a doornail. You're a
0: corpse. <laughs> yeah!
1: Blessed art thou. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who feel the pain and the weight of sin. That's why you're here. And God has come to you to confront you on that, and that's why you're here. This was not your idea. This was God's. And that's who called you here. That's who initiated the conversation. God seeks such people to be his worshipers. Secondly, this woman, let's talk about love, the area of love. Remember me preaching about that and about the corporateness of our worship? I want you to see what this woman does after that scripture reading. She goes back and she goes into this town. Now, John Guest said something I never thought about last Sunday. He said, how is it that the twelve guys who were with Jesus all this time they see Jesus heal the sick, raise the dead, preach the word that transformed the lives of thousands of people. The disciples go into town and come back with lunch. The woman hears one sentence or two sentences out of Jesus' mouth. She goes into town and comes back with the whole town. Do you ever think of that? Well, I tell you what, that's the corporate sense of worship. I hope you do not come here to see what you can get out of worship. Because you could have stayed home and watched on TV a preacher and got something. The sense of worship here is that we're a family. God does not call individuals to be his people. He calls people to be his people. God is making for himself a peculiar people. And so that's why when we get together, it's not just for the purpose of coming close to God. Otherwise, you could stay in your prayer closet. We come together to worship as a family and to realize there are other people here who love God and can help us worship. And wor- and, and, and our worship is different because of it. You know my favorite part of worship is? I probably shouldn't admit this. Favorite part of worship is when we are singing and all the instruments cut out. And I can hear the body. Boy, that just gives me the greatest sense. Lord, this is my family. All of us are seeking you together, and because all of us are seeking you together, there's a different quality to this worship. Because you are calling to yourself a people. See? So, that is why we have every Sunday a sense of usness, a sense of family time. That's why we have some sort of family time, some sort of corporate expression because that is so important to Christianity. Now, I told you that this was going to be kind of off, disrupted and, and to kind of hold hold it loosely this morning. What we're going to do is kind of weird, but it fits in with the subject matter. We're going to have our family time right now. Um, where's Dick? Dick? Dick, come up. Dick is our pastor of pastoral care. He's going to come up and he's going to do the family time because his job is doing the family time. <laughs> Registration pads right now. Pick them up, pass them while I'm talking. I know it doesn't seem worshipful, but pass them. Part of what we're trying to do this morning is to, to um, correct a let's go have a nice worship service feeling so that you can get a broader picture of what worship really is. You can get it in the midst of chaos because that's what this woman was going through. It was all discombobulated her day, but yet, in a sense, she was talking to the one who loved her and called her. By the way, worship, if I, if I forget to tell you this, worship in Greek is proskaneo, and it means, pro means toward, and kuneo means to kiss. Worship really literally means to kiss toward to have that intimate relationship with God and when Jesus was there that day calling her she was beginning to form an intimate relationship with him which was worship now let me review what we've said so far worship is confession it is realizing your limitations and crying out to God and so therefore anytime you do that in the world you are participating in worship Worship is love. It is gathering others. It is realizing the relationships that God has given you are from Him, and they are to go to Him. They are for Him. And so therefore, anytime you love in the world, and you realize God is in that mix, that is a part of worship. Now let's go on. have got three more. Worship is also being called to the next step. Worship is working for God, toward God, taking the next step. It is God calling. In every worship service, there ought to be a challenge. Jesus was a... Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. You know what prophets did? They challenged people. They got in their face. And they said, take the next step. In every worship service, there ought to be a challenge to take the next step in your life. You ought to hear the voice of God that says... God, what else is there? And God tells you, and you come on. You realize the first thing that Jesus uh, addressed this woman with was a request. Give me a drink of water. He wanted her to do something very simple. But he said, give me a drink of water. Then there was another request. Go Go and call your husband. Both of them. And then there was another request. God is seeking those who will worship Him and worship Him in truth. You see, all the way along, He was challenging her with a call. And worship is a call on your life. And it is one in which you must respond to if you are ever to have that intimate relationship with God that you desire. And it is one that places an irrevocable claim on your life. It is a challenge. It is one that you have the choice, just as she had the choice, to turn away from and run and cover up, or one to say, "No, I want to get involved with you, whatever it takes, whatever relationship I have to give up. I want to get involved with you." Listen to this. Last week, I preached a sermon. Um, it wasn't on sex, but that's what—that's the only thing most of you heard. And so I've gotten into several conversations this week. And this is good. This is a wonderful thing. And the conversations, some of them run like this. You know, I know what God's telling me to do. But I've been in this relationship. And I have a sense of obligation in this relationship, even though in my heart of hearts I know it's not what God wants. What is God telling me to do about my obligation? Quit it. Quit it. Let me tell you something. Those kinds of obligations don't do anybody any good. Those kind of obligations, even though they feel good and they feel like they have a sense of honor, really only have a flesh honor. And drag both of you down. Let me say this to you who didn't call me up, who should have called me up. When God says something to you, when he calls you to make the next step and you know it's right, you do it. No matter what the personal cost is. No matter what the cost seems to be to the other person because the cost is always beneficial to both of you. A long time ago, uh, before Miss Manners, Emily Post was the authority on etiquette. And somebody wrote her a letter one time And she said, I have received an invitation to the White House on a certain date. I had a prior obligation on that date. What is the right thing to do? And Emily Post wrote her back and said, An invitation from the President of the United States is not just an invitation, it's a command. It automatically cancels all previous obligations. When God says something to you, it's not just an invitation. It's a command. And it automatically cancels all previous obligations. Do what God says to do. No ifs, ands, or howevers. (laughs) Okay. Come further with me now. Learning in worship. You know, she said, tell you what. Father's, Father's worshipped over here, and you worship over there, and this is what you say, and this is what we say. Which one is right? Jesus said to her, you know what? You guys worship who you do not know. We worship who we know. The place is not important. The information, though, you can learn from. Every week, hopefully, you come not only to confess... Not only to love, not only to be called to the next step, but you also come to get information. That helps you in the direction of your call, hopefully. Now, usually we address that by, by a sense of uh, a sermon or a drama or something to teach. Vernon even teaches us uh, in between the, the uh, uh, worship songs. But that learning process is dedicated to God. It's not confined to the... You can learn about God all over the world. She wasn't in the temple when she was learning about God. About what He required. About the living water. But she knew it was Him teaching her. It is very important that we understand that God wants to teach us uh, uh, an accurate direction. One time, a long time ago, I heard about this... uh, this old guy that was bringing a boat into harbor in the middle of the night. And he happened to have a young uh, boy on the ship with him and, and uh, all he could see were, were these dim little lights up, uh, up on the shore. And he said, How in the world can you be sure of your direction? In the middle of the night, I can't see any harbor. He said, I tell you what, when I come in, Yes, see, I look for the brightest light on that shore. You can pick it out right now. Sure enough, enough, there was a bright light. He said, now look at the two lights just to the right of that. And he did. He saw two lights just kind of a little bit apart from each other. He said, when I line the boat up so that all three of those lights are in line, I know I am going directly into the mouth of the harbor. The three areas that we talk about every week are Scripture, God's personal call on your life and your circumstances. We try to make it relevant to where you guys live and the situations you're in. When you say, what am I to learn? The answer is you are to learn how your circumstances and the calling that is within you from God. The this, this seeking God is calling you, how that lines up with Scripture. And when you line that up with Scripture, you can proceed. Those are the three things that need to line up. Scripture first. That's the brightest light. So therefore, in all of learning, you don't have to come to church for that. In all of learning, when you line up Scripture with your heart and with your circumstances, you can proceed. Okay, now one more, and then we're going to have communion together and worship some together. Life and worship. If you will remember, the other arena is who we are as a person. It's it's our identity. It is the provisions of God that point to who we are. So anytime you sense the provisions of God in your life, the blessings of God that remind you that you're his child and he's your provider and give you that sense of identity, that's worship. That's why we sing songs of praise and thanksgiving. And why the qualities of our worship often have, and should always have, a sense of praise and thanksgiving. But they should also have a sense of how God comes to us and tells us who we are. That's why very often we uh, um, do the Apostles' Creed together. Because that's one of the ways he reminds us who he is and who we are with theological accuracy. That's why we say the Lord's Prayer together. Jesus taught us to say that Lord's Prayer together. Why? Just so we could get what we wanted? No. So that he could remind us of who we are in him. You pick that Lord's Prayer part. You are enriched with your identity as a Christian. And how God gave us that vessel to remind us of our identity. Now, I want to make a request of you. Because the elders are talking about what is a very important issue right now. It has to do with the sacraments. Uh, we have not had a, a real strong, clear sacramental theology in this body since its beginning. One reason was that it is uh, uh, part of the history of the church is that it comes out of mostly uh, a Baptist background or, or theology. The other is that that it uh, it threw out everything when it began. This began, this kind of a 60s thing, you know? And it, and it threw out all of the mindless, ritualistic stuff that... Uh, that ought to be thrown out. You know, because it's not that it's not important, it's that people don't think about it and they just do it, and that doesn't bring you any closer to God, see. And so therefore, it was important at one point to throw all that out, but <laughs> now that we have it all thrown out and we're free in Christ, we're trying to figure out if at some points we didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And and that's a very appropriate phrase, you'll hear why in just a minute. There is a sense of sacramental theology when you understand that we are a covenant people and that God makes certain agreements with his people way beyond our understanding and has certain ways to come to them that he has announced that are beyond what appears to be just a surface remembrance. Now, in ordinance theology, you have the Lord's Supper and the baptism being a way that we're obedient to Christ, but it reminds us uh, of what Christ did, but there's in no sense any special relationship in that act. It's just we're being obedient, we're remembering, we're, we're, we're getting in line here. Okay, In Roman Catholic theology, at the other extreme, you have the sacramental elements and the act of sacrament having value in itself. That is, in the elements, God resides. You know, uh, in the sacrament, there is some sort of soteriological value. There's some sort of uh, uh, help for salvation. Okay? And you do that in order to be saved. Now, obviously, we ain't here. Okay? That's not good. That's lousy theology. That's not good theology. Uh, Jesus isn't in that piece of bread. He He's... But you get in the middle. And you have this sense, see... That God is somehow specifically involved in the heart of his people when they understand the sacrament of which they partake. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That, that he's not in the elements, it's not magical, and it doesn't have any saving grace, but it does have a special union where God comes down and visits his people because they're doing exactly as he said. It's not just a remembrance. God is here somehow in a special way. That's good sacramental theology. Well, right now, the elders are talking about, because we've been confronted at different places, about why is it that if you are truly a non-denominational church, you only dedicate infants in Baptist. You only have Baptist ways of dedicating infants. Why have you not looked at infant baptism as a sacrament as the history of the church has said it was. Now, if you understand, as we do, that there is no saving power in that act, if you understand that um, um, this is something that, if accurately presented theologically, would just have a special sign. You know, Paul calls baptism kind of the fulfillment of circumcision. Uh, or the New Testament continuum of circumcision. And circumcision was a rite that took place when a baby was eight days old that included him into the family of God, but did not presume on his election or his salvation. If you see it in that way, then the elders are thinking, well, you know, why haven't we considered that? Why is it that we're only Baptist in our in our conducting of these of these two very important sacraments of the church. As a matter of fact, we've got to think, you know, this is why we're considering it, we've got to think all of the major people, the theological thinkers of the church who have bestowed upon us the accurate understanding of scripture, up to probably, I would estimate 90, 95% of them, Augustine and Aquinas and Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and you could go all down through those of us who have taught who, those, those of them who have taught us the scripture all of them practiced infant baptism and so here we are, a church not even 20 years old yet said, well they missed something you know? well you've got to kind of stop and pause there and say, have we got the whole picture here so that's what the, that's what the elders are doing right now pray for them that they can have an accurate understanding of Scripture and what we're to do in that area? Because it is so important to include God in our lives in a way that is clear and helps His people kiss toward Him, get close to Him, so that they can be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But also so that we can include all in that journey together. Pray for them. Anyhow, that's why we have sacraments. To remind us who we are in Christ. And to establish and reestablish and remember that identity. Now, speaking of sacraments, we are going to partake of one. Pastor Dick's going to come forward and we are going to complete the learning part of this worship with the sacramental and song part.